welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Before we get into things this week, I just want to tell you about my new podcast. It's called Notes from the Field. It's a show about travel. This week's episode is part one of a part two series on Myanmar, specifically the uh, main urban city in Myanmar, Yangon. And uh, it's a place that I went to uh, back around Christmas time last year, 2019, and really fell in love with. So this, uh, these couple of episodes capture what I saw and uh, what I thought about that really fascinating country and that amazing city. So uh, if you haven't listened yet to Notes from the Field, go ahead, uh, start with this one, or better yet, start from the beginning of season one and listen all the way through. Um, I hope you will enjoy it, and thank you for giving that a chance. My guest today is Barry Wellman. So Barry Wellman is a sociologist, and he worked for 46 years as a professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. He was the S.D. Clark professor for the last five or so years. And he is known for being a pioneer in uh, basically the study of social networks, particularly with interest in, in how social networks are manifest in uh, sort of urban lives and urban settings. And uh, I, this is something that I've been learning a lot about recently, which is essentially how the, the concept of a social network was pioneered starting really in the 70s, I'd say, by sociologists and sort of built on uh, by a number of the people that I've uh, actually talked to on this podcast, people like Mark Granovetter, uh, and just, just understanding how, even though there's this big concept, social media, which sort of is a big part of the, the landscape of our existence today, uh, the, con- the idea really started uh, with sociologists. And they've been looking at it for a long time, so I've just been exploring more about where those ideas came from and if there's stuff that they figured out back then that maybe is relevant for understanding our world and the, the, the idea of social media that we currently have in it. Um, um, yeah, maybe there's something there. And so uh, Barry Wellman is definitely a key figure in that, and uh, he's published uh, many papers, books, all that sort of stuff on it. And it was fun to talk to him, hear about his experiences and how his ideas changed over time and uh, just you know what he's seen throughout his many years in sociology. So without any further ado, here is Barry Wellman. All right, so I guess the first thing that I want to talk about was something that you mentioned in a paper that you sent to me, some of your retrospectives. And that was about you growing up in the Bronx. So I guess I'm just curious, what did that look like? What was that? What was that background like? And then how did, yeah, how did that start to develop for you? Well, the Bronx at that time was a white area, densely packed, six-story apartment buildings, basically, mostly Jewish and Italian. And people lived on the streets in a good way. I mean, we had apartments, and we were not poor. We were middle class. But we hung out with each other. And we played a lot of basketball and a lot of stickball. And um, we kind of got along. Yeah. And it was, a, and the subway was uh, 
30 seconds from my house, basically. And by the time I was nine years old, I was taking my allowance, putting a nickel in the uh, in the subway slot and, and riding downtown and walking around with my friends. You know, my parents wouldn't know about this because we didn't have activity tractors in, the, in those days going on. So it, it was a very vibrant, very positive experience. We weren't afraid. We did have, we had a pseudo gang called the Fordham Flames, but it was, it was really just so we could have cool jackets. And I'm going to jump ahead to your question. So I was shocked when I got to Harvard and started taking urban sociology and read the canonical stuff, which said that cities are disorganized, evil kind of places. I guess one thing I'm curious about, curious about coming out of that was that was it expected that you'd go to college, and what did what did the sort of average trajectory of someone from from that neighborhood look like? Sure. Well, my father was a very small scale accountant. He traveled from small business to small business as an itinerant every day, doing their books. My mom was a school teacher. They were born in New York City. And they had gone to college. Um, we were, I was third generation Russian Jewish immigrants. And Jews believed in education. They believed in equal opportunity. It, was, it wasn't like we demanded affirmative preference. It was more like, let's, let's take SAT tests and let's get rid of quotas. Now, I encountered very strong Jewish quotas um, at applying to college. Uh, Harvard was taking very few Jews. Yale was taking zero, um, certainly in the in the uh, in the faculty and the graduate level. And so, I wound up as a pretty good student. That was 150th in my class only, but they ranked us, you know. So that was serious high in the Bronx High School of Science, which was a top school at Lafayette. And Lafayette was a very small private college uh, with great humanities and great sciences, but very strong anti-Semitism. I learned I was a Christ killer. Um, I learned a, a lot of bad stuff. So when black folks these days think they have a monopoly on, on things like that, you know, I was, a, I was a child of people who had Holocaust and very strong memories. In fact, my parents never wanted me to go visit Russia or Germany because of, of, of the bad backgrounds that they had thought about and hadn't actually experienced. In fact, my father was mad till he died that I, one, I bought a Ford Mustang, because Henry Ford was a noted anti-Semite, and two, that I, I've been driving and somewhat racing BMWs since 1974, my wife and I, and those were, were difficult kind of times, yeah. So anyway, we were we were a teeming multicultural city, and people basically got along. And I thought it was very positive, and I still do. I live uh, right next to the University of Toronto, which is in the heart of Toronto right now. And we walk everywhere. We used to take subways everywhere, but we're avoiding that now. And it's great. Yeah. I'm glad I can afford to live here. And then so at Lafayette, what did you study? Was it clear to you that you were interested in societies and communities at that point? Or did you start off uh, exploring different things and then eventually figuring out that sociology was what you're interested in? 
It was the latter. Um, my parents, my father especially, really wanted me to be a doctor. Uh, it was the Jewish ideal in those days. And, or a dentist, they said, because dentists re, uh, have better hours. And I did it. And I got through qualitative analysis and dissecting a dogfish, and I hated it. And I got, I got my A's, so that was okay, but I didn't want to do this in my life. And I'm, I'm physically not very good. And so that was, that was it. So I became a history major and thought about journalism, but my parents said, no, you can't make any money in journalism. Uh, so I thought about going to grad school in history. And then I was walking with a friend of mine at Lafayette, and he said, Barry, you're always interested in society and social history. Never thought about being a sociologist. And in some ways, it was like you mentioned Mark Granovetter the other day. It kind of clicked for me. And I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. At Lafayette, they did not even have a sociology course. This was in the early 1960s. Um, but they found an anthropologist who was willing to prep me in sociology. And I read the New York Times every day, and that was a great way to do sociology. So um, things really, really um, um, clicked. And, but I was terrified in applying to school. First of all, we knew about anti-Semitism. Uh, we didn't know what would be working at graduate school. But I applied to 10 different departments. And frankly, I aced the, uh, the SATs. I did very well, including the sociology part. And I was the second rank in the school. So my grades were good. And I was a TV star. I'd been on something called College Bowl, uh, which is an American quiz show. I don't know. Well, you're American. It's not on networks anymore, though. And it's kind of like Jeopardy, uh, except team-based. And so I got into all 10 places. And I got a letter from Talcott Parsons, who was the most famous sociologist in the world. And of course, Harvard had this uh, religious significance in my family. Uh, we, you know, it was such an important name. I, you know, I, I, that's where I went. I, I visited a few places. I remember that I went up to Harvard and I stayed in a friend of mine's dorm room from the Bronx, Todd Gitlin. Todd is a was, was mostly famous at that time for running Students for Democratic Society, which was a very strong white um, progressive organization. And it seemed great. And I, I went to Harvard, you know, I, I did the obligatory tour, recruiting tour, and I said, how many people do you take in every year? And they said, 20. And I said, how many people are in the second year? Um, 19. Well, that sounds pretty good because I was scared stiff. Um, I went to Columbia because it was local, although I wanted to get away from my parents. And I said, how many people do you take in the first year? They said, 40. I said, how many people do you have in the second year? And they said, 20. And I said, that's not good. Um, I don't need this social Darwinism. And it's what's called in sociology, a club mentality at Harvard. If we take you, we're going to take care of you. And they, and they did. They found money for us. They had beautiful mentors and, um, and fellow graduate students. So what was the state of anti-Semitism when you got to Harvard? So this was so an undergraduate in early 60s at Lafayette. Uh, there were quotas. Um, I don't remember when Harvard um, 
ditch their Jewish quotas. But was what 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 was the state? What what was I guess quantitatively, if you know, and then qualitatively for your own experience? Yeah. Well, let me just correct one thing. What happened in Lafayette is they, they got a liberal Presbyterian uh, president, uh, K. Roll Bergefon, um, who's is a hero of a lot of us, who said, "I'm not going to take this anti-Semitism anymore," and he opened up. Uh, in, open admission, achievement-based admission. And so we Jews flooded in, we had 30% of the class. But the, the fraternities couldn't handle it because they were all, they literally said in, in writing something you would never see now, write Christian only. Um, and there were a couple of token ones for Jewish kids. So it was a socially awkward place, but I was a smart kid. and. And they opened up a little dorm, a 20-person dorm for smart kids called McKelvey House, uh, which gave us all a kind of home. And that was, that was kind of good. Uh, when I went back to Lafayette ooh, 20 years later to visit uh, a professor friend of mine who had been one of my mentors there, it turns out, much to my amazement, I was a hero. I was I a hero because you had been on College Bowl and therefore had extolled the academic prowess of Lafayette rather than the football or basketball prowess, which is, you know, what what the school was basically known for. Uh, Harvard, I don't know about undergraduate anti-Semitism or quotas, uh, but graduate level was fine. Although only later on reflection that I realized they only had one Jewish professor there, Alex Enkelis. Uh, later, they brought Marty Lipson and a few others in. Um, so, you know, what happened is the civil rights movement, paradoxically, was opening things up for Jews because it was basically saying uh, ascriptive categories don't really uh, make a difference. Let's, let's be achievement-oriented. And we do pretty well on that. Yeah, okay. Um, so let's talk about your experience at the Department of Social Relations then. So um, you mentioned Talcott Parsons, who was the most famous sociologist of the time, definitely one, one of the ones who's up there of the entire 20th century. Uh, so what, did you have a relationship with him? Uh, what, what, what did you, uh, what was he like? Well, he, he, in his own way, he was a sweet guy. But he really wanted to dominate the world in sociology. He, he made sure his people got jobs, that his paradigm was important. And the faculty, other faculty had a lot of trouble with him. Um, he was so filled with jargon and typologies that, that, I, I, that, that I got turned off. Uh, we never fought or anything like that, but it was not the route that I went. We had two young, charismatic uh, professors in their 40s there. One was Charles Tilley, and one was Harrison White. And a whole bunch of us, you know, remember a pretty small cohort of graduate students, gravitated uh, towards them. And so in some ways, my background is very similar to Mark Granovetter's. Um, I became teaching assistants for both of them. Harrison was brilliant in developing paradigms and teaching the whole sense of what a social network is like and organizing things uh, intellectually. Um, Chuck Tilley was a, a social historian, but also really preached 
that cities were networks. He, his first book, which I got to check, which I'm feeling embarrassed, I got to check the title, uh, Community Cities, something else, um, has a great essay in it at the beginning uh, talking about that. And the notion that, that communities were networks was, it just was it. Because one of the things I did was, was surf a lot of different worlds when I was in New York. And that, that's basically what the network approach is about. It wasn't, uh, the big argument in cities then and now was about when the cities are little tight neighborhoods, pods, if you like it, uh, when we're talking about um, fighting COVID. I don't know if that word's being used in England, but stay in your pod. Is it being used in? I wouldn't the UK? say the that word specifically, but certainly I think household is kind of what they're what the term they're using, which I well the notion of pod is five to ten different people, um, and but the notion is that these five to ten people basically only talk to each other, which is crazy. I mean that's we're getting a lot of illness now because the, the fact is people link with each other. Yeah. Yeah, and so when so so does that so is, when in reading that sort of work was that when you started to form your own notions of putting your finger on oh this is what I'm going to do in your own your own idea of of your research and your vein and defining yourself as an individual researcher is that when that started to take place? Yeah, very much so. Although I didn't do my thesis that way, but um, I was I was Tilly's personal teaching assistant. He only had one. Harrison had about eight of us. But so I got indoctrinated, and I, you know, we became friendly to the extent. Look, we didn't. Yeah, I guess we did call him a little bit by first name, but it was, it was a, a little bit more elegant uh, relationship. But just to jump ahead, and then I'll jump back with Tilly. Did not get tenure at Harvard because he hadn't produced very much, and he came up to Toronto where they actually grabbed him and promoted him from lowly assistant professor or lecturer to full professor. And his wife was getting a PhD, Louise Tilly at the time. And he called me up one day and he said, I have a job for you in Toronto. And the job was running the East York study. So it was that way that I did that. My PhD thesis was actually about the self-conceptions of black and white kids under segregation. Um, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, because that's where um, a woman I knew got research grant money for. That was okay. Um, and I haven't even thought about it in years. It would be hard for me even to say what what we found up. But we found out that kids in um, integrated schools were much more aware of their race than kids in segregated schools because they grew up with their own um, kids in segregated schools. They didn't have to think about being black uh, as, as much as kids in integrated schools. So in our email correspondence, you mentioned Homan's book, Coming to My Senses, uh, which is yeah. autobiography. And he has this passage where he mentions the skits that he'd put on at Christmas parties. For example, apparently a parody of Gordon Alpert as the sort of old woman slash mother figure of the department. Did you ever happen to catch one of those? Well, I saw about three of them. I was there for four years. Um, Allport was kind of motherly. Uh, I was very kind to people. 
and he and Tom Pettigrew uh, really set the need for, set the desire for systematic looking at uh, the consequences of integration and how racial differences matter. Um, the people I remember being made fun of mostly was, was Pitarim Sorokin, who is an old, then famous sociologist, uh, had been actually been Kerensky's private secretary in Russia, so we had a kind of sense of him um, really being the, the old days. And then the, there was the takeoff on Parsons, who was called Talk A Lot Parsnips. And so there was a lot of joking around uh, about that going on there. What what happened in the Talk A Lot Parsnips skit? Do you remember? I don't remember. It was yeah. 60 years ago. <laughs> but of course, the nice thing is that it was a Sockrell department, oh. social relations. Oh, I think it was the wrong bent in Sockrell because uh, it had sociology, social anthropology, which was fine, and then it, it had uh, social psych and uh, clinical psych, where a few people were being trained to be clinicians. And the problem with that was that it, it led to a kind of hyper-individualistic notion of the world without taking into account the kind of macro consequences. If they had had links with political science, for example, I think it w would have been um, a very different kind of looking department. But Homans and Parsons, although they didn't like each other, um, really wanted to have what they thought was a science of human behavior working out from the individual, uh, Homans especially on that. But it, it, I, I love the ecumenicalism of the department in the sense it had a lot of different uh, perspectives going on. The anthropologists were great, uh, took courses with Cora Dubois, who had just come back uh, from India. And um, that was, you know, that was cool. And we there's, there's a big problem in American universities where they kind of study only uh, undergraduates that they can get cheap survey data from. And, you know, we were exactly the opposite. We were really people going out and doing interesting things in the world. So my thesis was on black kids and white kids in Pittsburgh, because that's where there was grant money for. And I lived there for a month, and I hung out with people. And um, as I said, we found out that people had uh, social identities that were very strongly linked to what kind of school they went to. Um, but I had to change it all around, because I had gone there thinking that integration was great, and in some ways it was, but really made the kids very nervous. Uh, we were looking at ninth graders at the time. And we found that it didn't affect their grade point average as much as then. That was a big concern in the mid-1960s. So those, those were my first early never-cited publications. Um, but anyway, um, first one was called Cosmopolitanism in Black and White, well, the second one, actually. And that, once again, was about crossing social boundaries. Um, 
And meanwhile, Tilly called me up and said, I have this job for you to help run what later became the East Drug Study. You're going to be number two to a clinical uh, psychiatrist. And at the same time, you'll have an appointment in the sociology department at U of T. So here I am at the very young age of 24, um, going to a different country and, and starting a new career. And I knew how to run a survey, so oh, at least I fainted. And we ran the survey, and the survey asked about a lot of friendships and stuff like that, because the whole psychiatrist was interested uh, was whether good social networks, he didn't use that term then, was going to help people um, deal with depression, deal with anxiety, deal with the usual uh, clinical stuff. In fact, we never actually studied that because he, he himself got lost interest, but we had all the data about who were your friends. And, you know, I pioneered uh, without thinking about it, but a lot with Chuck Tilly's help. Um, asking, well, tell me who your closest friends and relatives are, where do they live, how are they related to you, what kind of help do they give you, sort of stuff. And that put networks very much on the map. Um, although it took me about 10 years to write the first big paper on networks. Yeah, so it sounds like that's sort of the beginnings of what later became networked individualism. Yep. And maybe there was a sort of 10-year period there where so East York studies started in the late 60s if I'm if I'm correct and then maybe your first really big paper that put you on the map was the community question and that yeah. was 1979 yeah I already had tenure then which was nice but it got me promoted to full which was even nicer um and Toronto became a home of network analysis there were about five people there um, myself, Lauren Tepperman, Bonnie Erickson, um, God, I'm blanking on names, uh, Steve Berkowitz, Harriet Freeman. They were very interesting networks. Meanwhile, my wife and I were, went on sabbatical, and we found we were talking to a lot of social network people in England. Who, uh, Clyde Mitchell, who was at Oxford, um, first at Manchester, then at Oxford, John Barnes at Cambridge. And we found they didn't know much about each other. So one of the things that we did is when we came back, we founded the International Network for Social Network Analysis. Uh, started in 1976 and 77. And um, a lot of the Harrison White people were, became involved in the States and the English people. And then we started picking up French and Japanese and stuff. So that took a fair amount of my time, but I love to write. Uh, it turned out to be a pretty good organizer, and we kept it really cheap. It was seven bucks a year for membership. Uh, I used all volunteer labor, which is very costly in terms of my getting people to do it, but helped make some people's careers because they can put it on their data. And we ran it like we run um, academic meetings until this year, which is a lot of gossip. Um, and things like that. So we didn't want formal papers. We wanted basically people to schmooze with each other. And so we put out a, a, something called connections every three times a year that very much pushed for that. And we, we made a very faithful decision. We said we're not going to form a, se a separate section within the ASA or the APA 
but we're going to infiltrate all the other sections. And so instead of ghettoizing ourselves into social network section, uh, we started bringing the network approach and philosophy into, into other kinds of things going on. So that was kind of a meta-social network, the social network of people who study social networks. Oh, yeah, we're very strong. And that, uh, and you, you guys, I suppose unsurprisingly, turned out to be very good at organizing uh, yourself into a social network of social network scientists. Yeah, now it's kind of sleepy, I think. But, sure. Uh, well, so that, but, I guess that's what I'm interested to know about, is that that word back in you know the late 1970s and onward means something very different than it does in, you know, this century in 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 2020. So I think it's kind of interesting that sociologists, uh, yourself, uh, Mark Granovetter, other people, were touching on this sort of set of ideas of how people are connected to each other, not just communities necessarily in a geographical sense, but in this relational sense. And this turned into one of the defining features of society in its modern format, right? With with social networks and, and everything that's, that's going on there and all the political implications and all the psychological implications. So I guess, uh, can you put your finger on what it was back in the day that made that topic seem so appealing and uh, why, yeah, any anything that you can sort of look at and, and see as prescience uh, for, you know, intuitively understanding it was going to develop into this this massive thing as it has well it fit the data it fit reality i mean the binary i don't know if you've i have a paper that keith hampton who was my student and i mentioned his own right and i wrote about lost in community is the binary was always people falling apart or they're or they're in, in a little pod and that that wasn't true if i start on uh second chapter of my book, I'll make believe I'm flogging my book on television, um, talking about the many structural changes that were happening in not only American society, but certainly in Europe and to a lesser extent in the third world, um, that people had their own cars, their own means of communication, they had access to their own telephones, although it was family phones then, and they were becoming less distant. And so the evidence was there, and we didn't become really, really popular until computer networks came out, which was in the mid-'80s uh, when, when I started playing around with, with CS people. That's when that word developed in, in a very loose sense, in fact, uh, I have one paper, I remember, I think the title is great, I forgot about what the paper is, it is a computer network, it's a social network, and uh, Nash Contractor, who you would probably should interview too, was reminding me the other day that that was the first paper in, the, in, in Science Magazine that had the word network in it as a social concept. And I was, I was shocked um, when he told me that, because we just took it for granted. Uh, it helped us interpret the world a lot better than than not. We're data driven, I think, or evidence driven. So let me see if I understand the sort of basic ideas of, of this sort of stuff. So the, the the original conception of what a community is is that it's it's very geographically bounded, 
you know, sort of, okay, here's a village. And socially, and socially bounded. Socially bounded. And, um, and your, the sort of progression of your thought looking at networked individualism is that you can have the appearance of breaking down that village, but that doesn't mean that the social network is, is broken down. For example, right. when you right. and your fellow network scientists, either from Japan, England, America, etc., um, that's not a village in any meaningful sense, but you are creating this larger uh, social network. And so the sort of key insights that, that you and your colleagues brought to the table was sort of transcending that old school uh, conception of a community as this very bounded entity and blowing it up to, yes, well, if you have telephones, well, then you can uh, call up your uh, friends and, and keep in touch with them. And in the same way that today, if you have Facebook and Twitter and this and that. And so uh, it was sort of, in a sense, almost just, you know, following the, the technolo te technological developments, like you said, when computers came along, that changed the way people started to think about networks and social networks. And um, you sort of traced the trajectory of sociological thought through those technological developments. Yeah, I guess so. Um, although what happened is I found the sociological stuff and then I started thinking about why it happened. So it was kind of working back uh, the other way. And then I was hanging around with a lot of computer science people and they kept wanting to look about com computer networks as, as, as entities in their own right. And I said, no guys, Anybody you talk to on a computer has to be somebody that you know in person. Or if not, for like you and I, we'll get to know each other one day. It's, it, now it's a little bit more common um, to have these kind of uh, long-distance ties without person, personal contact. But in practice, there's a lot of, of, of in-person stuff going on. And um, that they're not separate worlds as the CS people kept thinking they were. And so they kept getting shocked by the fact that women were being discriminated against or not participating as much on Facebook or pre-Facebook kind of networks because they, why, why should that happen? Why should Now we're being shocked by the fact, I don't know in England, but I imagine it's the same way, that poor kids are not doing well in school uh, that depends on Zoom and and fairly good equipment to happen, and we're suddenly finding, and even in Toronto, which is a pretty benign city, that a lot, a lot of people, are, kids are just being disconnected by the loss of in-person schooling going on, and, and we, iPhones and iPads just don't do it for that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so. Yeah, so speaking of, of things that you're working on right now, uh, I saw that you have a book slated to come out next year in 2021, Getting It Done, Getting It Out, on writing in the social sciences. Is that is that true? I have a book that I hope will get out next year because of the physical disabilities I've been going through. Um, it, it slowed down. Um, but I'm a good writer. I know I'm a good writer. People tell me I'm a good writer. In fact, one of my side jobs is to help friends get this stuff published uh, when they get turned down by a journal. And, and that's one of the things I actually have a one o'clock meeting with, with a bunch of people who are going to work on something like that. So I've been teaching how to write as workshops for years. 
an old now dead friend, Carolyn Mullins, taught me, and that really made my career um, for the social network book that that I social structures uh, book that I edited ages ago with Steve Berkowitz, and how to take complicated, obscure thoughts and and translate them, and then getting it out and getting it but getting it done, uh, you know, pragmatic. Uh, tips from the street world on how to do things rather than abstract stuff and promoting it. If You know, you were talking with Mark Granovetter about how Gladwell has been a great promoter of, of Mark's works, but you've got to have people reading your own stuff uh, as much as possible, and that's changing. Um, you know, it used to be you put it in a journal and it was obscure in there, but now, in fact, we're having debates on whether everything should be online, open source, um, and doing TED Talks and stuff like that. Never done a TED Talk. Yeah, certainly that's something that I'm interested in is the different avenues for disseminating academic or quasi-academic content. Um, So obviously the podcast is not quite academic material, though it it deals with academics and and scientists and writers and, and people like that. And that's certainly a very interesting medium right now, and I'm a big fan of it. It allows us to do this sort of stuff, which um, besides the odd interview coming at the back of, you know, whatever journal, um, uh, uh, there's not really a place for this sort of stuff in, mm-hmm. in science. And podcasts are, are a really good place for that. So that, that's certainly one distributional avenue. Another one is, is pre-prints, which um, uh, allow you to uh, basically make your stuff available before it's been fully peer-reviewed. And that's something that I really like right now because... Um, you can get the basics, the, the, the gist of an idea out to the world and have people who are interested in that sort of stuff able to see it without having to have it be finished, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's, you know, in a sense, a paper has to be finished once it's gone past peer review and been accepted and everything like that. And um, I think that that's a really nice element of doing um, science and in, in in a, I think it's also a, a, an avenue of distribution that's going to change a lot over the, the near future. Well, Chuck Tilly, who was my mentor in, in very practical ways, a brilliant scholar and a brilliant promoter of the world, said when it comes out in a journal, everybody should have read it before that that you have influenced the people, the journalists, to basically tell this, the students what's going on. So I used to pretty aggressively promote stuff. Um, and that's hard in Toronto. You know, they have this British tradition in the UK, which really pisses me off, um, which says, sorry for self-promotion. And I've seen that in listservs all over the time. And I would write a nasty note back saying, well, if you don't think it works any good, why, why are you apologizing for it? I, I mean, do you, do you think it should sit there for 50 years and then somebody's going to discover this great gem? No. So, you know, you, you, you want to get your stuff out onto the intellectual marketplace. Um, a really obnoxious guy named Norman Pothoritz once came up to Toronto and I was in charge of taking care of him, you know, when he gave a talk. But he had a, a really interesting, aggressive theory. He said, every day in the world stock market, 
Uh, we have Mark Granovit is up 10 points, Wellman's down 15 points, uh, Gladwell is moved sideways. And so we have an intellectual marketplace going on there, and you got to get your stuff out. And I think he was right. I mean, if you think it's important and you're educating the world, do it. Otherwise, why the hell, you know? When I edit stuff, and I've done a lot of journal editing and book editing over times, you know, you can see the people are just placeholders. They're doing it because they want to get their, um, they want to get tenure, or, they, or their mother told them to do it and stuff like that. In fact, we start off um, part of the book, I think it's in chapter one or two. This is the new one on how to write on the many different reasons you might want to publish or not. So this, my book's going to be pretty cynical and very pragmatic. In fact, I think I had a practical guide and it's a subtitle once. Uh, about, you know, and the last chapter is called Promoting Your Work. You know, we haven't written it yet. Well, I think that marketing in general is misunderstood, particularly among scientists. It kind of comes off as a nasty word. Especially, and, in especially in Britain. Oh, well, I mean, the Brits can find a way to apologize for anything. So <laughs> <I like that. laughs> um, there's no doubt about that. But certainly self-promotion, I mean, it's that is the most egregious sin imaginable in the British consciousness. But at any rate, setting that aside, the um, I think that, yeah, that, that there's, this is linked to the assumption that scientists have that what should define a scientific work is not its situatedness within a market or how well it has been you know sort of touted among whatever group of people but it should be purely a function of its quality and at the end of the day uh this is a pretty naive view about how uh stuff actually works and especially today you know with the whole the, the downside of preprints is that everyone can put up their work at any point when they're ready and so there's uh way more work that exists than you have time to sift through in any meaningful way. And um, finding the right people who are going to be interested in, in it and giving them a meaningful explanation of why it's appealing to them, what you did, and uh, you know why it matters. That that's totally legitimate, and that that is, I think, in in uh, the best sense of the word, what what marketing is. It is finding the right market to consume the product, and that's why you created it. That's why you did the experiment. So, uh, people who are interested in that sort of stuff can consume it. Well, this is part of the process. I like that. <laughs> I'm curious. In I'll quote you on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'm curious, since you're working on a writing book right now, who are your favorite writers? Chuck Tilly, definitely. Oh, hmm. uh, he's dead. But he influenced social history in a lot of ways by basically treating it as a, as a network uh, phenomena. And I have a T-shirt, which unfortunately is in the wash, otherwise I would have worn it today. Um, that the students of mine, including me, put up called uh, Great great Networks, Great Promises, Big Headaches. Um, but the notion that things didn't happen because great men did it, but because um, there were linkages going on, he especially looked at the French Revolution. And he got started also looking at the American um, situations in the, the Kerner Commission, which is uh, a long forgotten 
a response by Lyndon Johnson to the last set of riots or previous sets of riots in the 1960s. And he and the students, you know, were finding things like uh, people just didn't randomly go out in the streets. If you look at who's walking around, they're walking around because their friend said, hey, let's go march. Or on the other side, let's go get a pickup truck and put on a Confederate flag, that there's a lot of information and solidarity coming from the network approach to that. Um, other writers, um, Deirdre Bear, I loved. Uh, she just died and she was a biographer, but she really got into the, um, the, the context of the biography. She did um, Aeneas Ning, she did um, Beckett and um, Simone de Beauvoir. And I was just reading her book called Parisians, which is really, really tells you how you do it. And Deirdre and, and, and I, and about 10 people, spent the month together at, at the Institute, the Rockefeller Institute uh, for Scholarship at, at Bellagio, I forget the, the fancy name for it, in which we really intensely kind of enjoyed each other um, and, and talked about that. That's when I started doing the book, we started the networked individualism stuff that took some years to come out. And that came out because um, my collaborator, Lee Rainey, is wonderful too. Lee's a journalist, but he's a socially informed journalist. He runs the Pew Internet thing. He founded it in 2000. And we loved each other writing, although he, I, I tend to be slow, so he got a little impatient with me. So in some ways, I'm trying to do what my father forbade me to do, which was be a journalist and interpret the world in some side of uh, context going on. I never wanted to be a doctor, and that's, that's fine. Yeah, you know, there's um, a classic sentiment, which is that most psychologists are just failed novelists. I think there's maybe a, a parallel yeah. sentiment, which is that most sociologists are just failed journalists. Um, well, or maybe we decided to be in with it. It was a better career and more robust. Well, one of the people I admired a lot was Jerry Bruner, right. uh, who, who was at Oxford until he got pissed off at Oxford. Um, that doesn't take long, I'll tell you what. <laughs> some people love it. Um, but Jerry, the hierarchy drove him nuts. But we spent a, a year together at the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies. And you know he was he was a storyteller. That's what he went to do when he left Oxford. He went to NYU and and started teaching the NYU Law School and, and started teaching clinical interpretation and forensics through storytelling. I mean that was an amazing thing in his career. Were you close to Jerry? Jerry was a great man, and I was a younger man. Yeah. Uh, but I enjoyed Jerry. Uh, and he had this little group that deliberately came together at the, at NIAS, the Netherlands Institute, and they kind of worked well. So, but you know, he taught me things like how to drink scotch, and we taught him how to how to drive BMWs. He was upshifting at two thousand RPMs, um, and so yeah, I, I wouldn't say I was close to him, but we, it was it was a fun friendship. What kind of yeah. scotch did Jerry Bruner like? I, forgot, I think it was Lefroig. Okay. Uh, but we would have scotch tasting parties. You put a whole bunch of, of them out, and, and you know, and 
we would kind of sewer it and stuff like that. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. This was uh, a ton of fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, really okay. interesting to hear about these different different parts of your career from the very start to uh, the, the stuff you're currently working on. Yeah, thanks a lot. Cool. All right, I'll be in touch. Bye. That was my conversation with Barry Wellman. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider subscribing to Cognitive Evolution on whichever platform you'd be listening through. If you want to uh, keep in touch with me, you can do so on Twitter and follow me at Cody Commerce, or you can do so through my email newsletter, which you can find at my website, codycommerce.com slash newsletter. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back here with another episode of Cognitive Evolution next week. Thank you.